0: You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences with building incredible cultures. On today's episode, we sit down with Bill Higgs, or as his friends like to call him, Mr. Mustang. Bill is the founder of Mustang Engineering and the author of Mustang the Story, as well as Culture Code Champions. Bill speaks to us today about how his experience in the military led to his passion for culture and how he created his culture code. Bill, welcome to the Scaling Culture Podcast. Uh, really excited to have you on today, and thanks for accepting our invite.
1: Well, I think it'll be a lot of fun.
0: This is the plan. We always have lots of fun, that's <laughs> for sure. So yeah. you're in, uh, you said uh, North Carolina?
1: Yes, yeah, Charlotte, North Carolina, right on the border of South Carolina.
0: Okay, how's, what's the lay of the land down there? Give me the COVID update quickly.
1: It's pretty nice. The, uh, we're in horse country, so it's rolling hills. Uh, we're sort of out of the city, so COVID's is not too bad down here at all.
0: Okay, great. Well, I'm going to jump into it. Um, Bill, tell me how you got so invested in culture. Walk, walk me through that. How did that all start?
1: I don't know. It might have started back when I was a Boy Scout, and uh, we just had a culture in there. Uh, probably due to becoming an Eagle Scout, I ended up at West Point. United States Military Academy, really tight-knit culture there within your class where you take care of each other. Then in the Army, I was in the Airborne Ranger units, which were very tight-knit, had a culture. You cross-trained, you were bonded, you were really tight. After five years, I got out of the Army, I was in civilian life, and people just worked and went home. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I didn't have that camaraderie, so when we started our company in Houston, Mustang engineering, designing offshore oil platforms, I wanted to have a bonded, tight-knit unit. And uh, that's not the way it was in Houston. People moved to wherever the jobs were. Uh, We went into a 10-year downturn due to the oil price. There was no loyalty between companies and people or people and companies. It was survival Mm of each individual person, each individual company. So. Just was horrible, <laughs> and yeah. I wanted to—I wanted to change that reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow! And so, when did you write your first book? Well, I took that company from '87 to 2008. We went from zero to uh, one billion dollars in annual revenue, which wow. was pre- pretty crazy. We wanted to have a 35-person company when we started. Ended up at 6500 and trained second and third generation. They took it to $2 billion four years later. When they hit $2 billion, then I wrote a book called Mustang, the story, sort of like our concept for starting the company, how we were going to be focused on a culture of people taking care of people, whether that was the client or the supplier or the other people within our company called Mustangers. And then my kids beat me up. They said, Dad, that book puts people to sleep. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and both, both my kids have their own companies. And uh, okay. they said, Dad, all those gold nuggets you taught us growing up as in the Mustang environment, you need a business book that just shows people how to do that. Because uh-huh. we did it in eight different industries. We did it in 12 international offices, and it worked every time. It's working in my kids' businesses. So that's where I did uh, Culture Code Champions, Seven Steps to Scale and Succeed in Your Business. They came out in January. It's a Forbes Forbes books, author book. And uh, so I've got some pretty good backing of them uh, feeling that I'm an authority on culture, you know, due to what we did in uh, right. keeping people together through some major downturns like we're looking at right now. We, we yeah. have those about every four years in the oil patch.
0: Right. Yeah. Well. Well. Look. Let's go to that book for a sec. So, so, give us an overview of those steps, uh, Bill, if you if
1: you will. Well, it's all about. It starts out communications. So first step is to get communication going top to bottom in your organization. Do some outside activities. Do some activities over lunch. You, my, yeah.
0: Bill, what's ahead. the number one thing to get that communication from the C level boardroom? If you if you know if you have a 15-layer company and needs to go to a front line? Or how do you, you, know, how do you push that right down to the, to the front lines?
1: Well, what I found helped a lot is having activities. So one of my favorite ones is to do a paper airplane flying contest over lunch. Love it. And so I'd get a cross-section of people to head that up. So I'd be busting the silos in the company between departments, get those people together. They would set the rules. They would publicize it. People would go home, they would build these paper airplanes with their families over the kitchen table. So now I'm trying to get the hearts and the minds of the family into the company. Then you'd have the competition, be lots of awards and things, you'd take pictures. One of the things I found in every downturn, the thing that spiraled downturns in the wrong direction was the coffee bar. People would meet at the coffee bar and they'd go, oh, it's so bad. Hey, have you heard where there's a project? in Houston, you know, where are they paying X amount?
0: So a coffee bar being the internal coffee stand at the company or a coffee right. shop or?
1: No, right there within okay. the company on the floor. Right. And so what I wanted is my, I wanted my sales and marketing people to do internal sales and marketing to keep our people. So they'd put up pictures of activities, announcing things coming up and put positive things up right. for people to talk about at the coffee bar. And then that positive attitude would go with them even when we're in a downturn. Got it. So opening communications is critical and then getting that sense of bonding. So in the Rangers, I was first cavalry division. You have a patch, you have a song, you have a hand sign at Mustang. We even had a mascot, a blue horse mascot that people could wear to functions or whatever, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but do those types of things. And, and also do a swag, uh swag, which is like trinkets, hats, t-shirts, things like that. Would always go to clients. We made sure all that stuff got into our people, and that toys got in the toy box at the house. Right. And so you're just integrating the family. Again, it's subliminal, but the people are thinking, "Wow, we're they treating us as important as they do their clients?" And mm-hmm. that's when they start feeling that. Then you're building that trust bridge that can really uh, take you to a new level.
0: When you're treating your employees. As, as well as you would your clients.
1: Right. right. And, and we did it for everyone. So we would have some contract people, but contract wow. people were included in everything. They got bonuses, everything, just as if they were a direct hire employee. And people would say, you know, why are you doing that for contract people? But they're working just as hard That's as great. everybody else. Uh, we didn't discriminate against them.
0: Wow. That's excellent. And so did this stuff, you know, it sounds like this would have started on onboarding. Is that when it begins? And what does the first day look like at at your
1: company? Uh, Absolutely, onboarding is totally key. We had what we called a new hire breakfast. So we would get a, a group of new hires together, the founders, myself and my partner, top leadership would be at that breakfast. And we'd go around and ask them where they came from, what project they're on, what they're doing. And we would spin off of that to talk about our culture and what we were trying to do to have good communication and really work handoffs between people. And one of the things we always asked, and I call this Operation Horse Thief. Horse Thief? Horse Thief, because we were a Mustang. We're a horse company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had Operation Horse Thief. We would say, who are the five best people that you know in this industry? And we'd get that list from them, and that would go on our list of horses that we wanted to go steal because obviously they would have our DNA. They would want to work the way we work. Right. So if you think about it, a lot of companies, HR's sorting through resumes and identifying people. When I was 100 people strong, I had 100 people looking for the next Mustanger. Right. I was 1,000 people, I had 1,000 people looking for the next Mustanger and identifying them. So in terms of being able to scale a company, Think of the power of that when all of a sudden you hit a bunch of work and you say, Hey, pull out the stops. We need 80 more people. I could get them and I could get them where they're already have our DNA coming in. They Huge. have the DNA that have the relationships. They would right. know somebody, somebody would be bought into bringing them in and introducing mm-hmm. them around. And so it's very positive right from day one where they would start. The other thing we did is, from 7.30 in the morning until 8.45, they were processed, and then they were in an office with a goodie bag full of swag and fun stuff yeah. with their computer with a the project they were on, and they have been introduced to their team. And they said it just made their head spin. Normally, they go into a company and you sit around. That was day one, Bill, correct? Yeah, the first four, two hours. Oh, yeah, beautiful. So, uh, way different than sitting around for four days waiting for somebody to give you something to do.
0: Yeah. And what was some of the ROI you had w- with these uh, activities? What, what was the, the direct return that you saw? You talked about you know, having a, someone who was a champion and, and would help you recruit. What are some of the other ROIs that you saw return on investment of, of these types of activities?
1: Well, the, the reason I call the book Culture Code Champions is you need a champion for each one of the steps to help implement it. And what happens is you now are getting intentional about creating your culture. In Houston, the turnover annually in engineering firms and supplying companies was about forty-five percent. Nationally, it's about thirty-five to forty percent. Our turnover was less than two percent. Wow. In a city where they could go to a hundred other engineering firms. Everybody's tugging on our people, but because of the culture, we didn't lose them. And, so, and pay
0: was on scale, was pay relevant to your to, to your competitors?
1: Pay, pay had to be on scale. Yeah. Uh, we called them the big boys, the Brown and Roots and the Bechtels. So we had to pay even or, or a dollar <laughs> more a year because people right. would compare W2s at the end of the year. Right. So definitely competitive, but because of our efficiency and how we work, we had four times the bottom line profit so most engineering firms were about 4 to 6% bottom line profit. We were 20 to 22% bottom line profit after giving bonuses and taking care of people. So that culture translates right into the bottom line because you're not having the turnover, you're not having the inefficiency. And due to that communication, we could do projects at a lower cost. So even though our rate schedule was the same, our actual cost to the client was less than our competitors and our projects got out ahead of schedule so it just it starts to feed on itself and that's why we grew from three people to 6,500
0: and bill let's go a little deeper there was that because your people were more engaged and so they were producing greater results you didn't have the turnover so there wasn't this messy hand over when when, when an employee left and had to hand the project to someone else. Break that down for me a little bit um, on why you were able to be so uh, efficient and and profitable.
1: Well, if you look at, uh, even though we used our Operation Horse Thief hiring method, we still had a bell-shaped curve of people. Mm -hmm. So we're in the Houston market, same as the 100 other engineering firms, you have a bell-shaped curve of people, some low performers, some super performers, and a bunch of people in the middle. Yep. And all our culture did is we shifted that curve a little bit to the right, to a little bit higher performance from every person. So every person was contributing a little bit more than they did when they were at Brown and Root or Floor or Bechtel or one of our competitors. Right. And so that's shifting that curve by having a better communication. So I say we built the whole company on good handoffs. So anytime somebody's handing something to another person, we wanted them to go learn that other person's job to some extent where they understood how what they gave them would be used. That way they could make it more digestible to them right the first time. That was the whole focus. If we could get it right the first time and not redesign, redesign. Mm-hmm have problems in purchasing, we would be the better mousetrap. And so it was all on the, the handoffs.
0: That's great. And so how did you sustain it? You talked a lot about first day, the things that would happen. How, what else, what other activities would you do to continue to bring your culture to life and sustain a, a strong culture?
1: I think the one of the watershed moments is we went 10 years of a downturn in the oil price. And clients would not let us put a new high school or a new college grad on their project. They only wanted experienced people because they knew that's not what they could get. So I started a young guns program and I just started hiring people, high school, college graduates. I would get a little creative on the resume as to what they had done as interns or whatever to show some experience. And that Young Guns program started out with 10 or 15 people a year. It became 100 to 200 people per year. And by year group, they got to know each other. So that busted silos because they were going into all the different departments from HR to project to electrical. So these Young Gun groups were cross-fertilizing. They were also gung-ho, had a lot of energy, could help a lot with activities. And then when we got into doing a lot in the community terms of volunteer work they could grab a hold of those and help us and all of them had mentors so older more established people were mentoring them and these young people <laughs> made those mentors get up on their toes with the questions they were asking right. and the, why this why that and it just uh, that's what helped sustain us when we retired in 2008 young gun people were in charge of everything from CEO down. People right. who had gone through the young guns program were in charge of everything, taking it from 1 billion to 2 billion.
0: And what, what were some of the traits of these, you know, called super performers, people that obviously uh, helped you separate yourselves from, from the competitors. What were they doing versus the, these B and C players? What were the super f- performers doing?
1: Well, I think, I always say I wanted people that are other oriented and uh, we used a term, we said making heroes. We want everybody to be making heroes of the people that they work with within a company, but then also making heroes of the suppliers. So give good information to the suppliers to where they can get it right the first time mm-hmm. and then make heroes of your clients. So get the information out of the client, figure out what's really driving their success and make sure that we deliver that. And so the super performers were other-oriented. They were focused on making heroes, but then they were able to communicate how they did that to where each of them could grab 10 other people and get them moving in that direction. Okay. So it was top-to-bottom leadership. Mm-hmm. We had, we were building leaders of character way down in the organization. Uh, one of the things I like that you did is that you were taking blue collar people and i love your book you had outrageous empowerment of your blue collar people so in the army the ncos the non-commissioned officers the sergeants those are the backbone of the army the officers come and go but that backbone is what drives it right in an engineering firm the backbone is the drafters and designers because they're doing the drawings that go out the door but they were treated like second class citizens in most engineering firms. Mm. We raised them to a level of professionalism because they normally kept all their books in boxes because they were just like migrant workers traveling to where the projects were. We got them to a level of professionalism where they unpacked. And I just had uh, our first ever designer we hired just retired after 33 years. So these people found a home. They were well respected. They stayed long term, and that's that was a big change in, in right. lower net turnover rate,
0: yeah. right? And profitability, and absolutely, and yeah. Uh, but look, that's, that's incredible. Let me rewind a little bit. You know, you, you obviously had transformed some people internally. But tell me more about how would you screen? How did you find the right people? Everyone, there seems to be. Um, uh, it seems to be difficult for a lot of organizations to say, look, we know we need this role and the skills for that role. They, they It's more challenging, it seems to be more challenging, to screen for culture. Can you talk about that?
1: I think it is, but like, I'll give you an example. I was going to hire my first salesperson after about seven years. I was the only sales salesy person in the company. But I, was I, bet also, good, I bet you were good, Bill. Oh, you had a gun running and projects.
0: you were on a horse selling things. That's how I picture you.
1: <laughs> That's right. Here comes Mr. Mustang. Look at that. That's right. But uh, I just put the word out in the company that I needed to hire a salesperson. And one of my top project managers came and said, Bill, I've worked with a guy for 15 years at this other company. Uh, he's been let go. And, he would totally fit in with this company. Uh, interviewed him, hired him, stayed 22 years, went so tell, from, me, Bill, tell sales and the contracts. Tell, tell but, me
0: about the interview, like what, what, how did you, how did you uh, ensure that he was going to be a, a fit? You know, you sure a colleague said, look, this person's gonna be great, I'm sure uh, I'm gonna vouch for them. What does that look like? What does the screening process
1: look like? Well, the thing that we did, because we were very adverse to overhead, and this was going to be an overhead position, so I knew my partners needed to be aligned with hiring this this person. So we had them interviewed by three of the department heads that had been there a long time, and I I say they bled blue. Our color was Mustang blue. They bled blue.
0: (laughs) So they were culturally aligned. You were very confident that they were aligned.
1: And so they could ask the right questions. My partner could ask the right questions. And I was in a situation where when I was hiring this person in, I was hiring them in when we did not need work. So there'd be no pressure on him to deliver in the first two months because we had a good backlog. So we could get him to understand how we sold because we only wanted win-win sales and uh, he came from a company where they'd sell even if they weren't good at the project. And I said, that's not us. We right. want to be the right answer or we want to help that client find the right answer. Mm-hmm. That, that takes a couple of months to get somebody to understand sort of into their body what your culture is like and how you want to deal with clients and deal in the industry. So we had the time to work that, but from the interview process, the people all said, Oh yeah, this is the right person. They're other oriented. They communicate well, they've got empathy. And, and so you could tell it was the right type of person. Right. And we just had to build them into the type of salesperson that we wanted.
0: And did you have a set of values um, back then? Did you have three to five core values with sublanguage? How did, how, what was the foundation
1: of the culture? But we had a vision statement, and our vision statement would actually work in any company. And our vision statement was, our quest is to embody a culture that inspires super motivated people to make heroes of clients, suppliers, and other Mustangers. So it was a quest. Like, we're never going to be done with this. We're always going to be trying to create this culture and we're thinking that we only have super motivated people. And if right. that doesn't match you, people actually wouldn't last long. It was a self-cleansing culture. Okay. If a person couldn't get on board with that, couldn't produce, wouldn't communicate.
0: Couldn't become a hero. It, uh,
1: it didn't, Upper management didn't have to clear them out. <laughs> they got right. cleared out down at the level where they were. But then the making hero, hero, heroes was right in it. And so you would hear that term throughout the company. And then we did have a set of core values. Uh, When we did the core values, my partner and I were there from the beginning when there was no work. (laughs) So we have a lot of scars from the startup. When we did the core values, there were like 20 words up there and we boiled it down to like six. And what bugged my partner and I is the term or the word innovation was not selected by the management team and so so we preempted them and said uh we're at an innovation you guys may not understand it but we're innovating across the industry with our culture and that's our key differentiator right but it surprised us to hear six years in uh people had already lost sight of what we were like in the first two years and so Mm -hmm. that made us realize we we've got to keep telling that story and Keep people, I call it lean and mean. That's sort of an army term, but stay lean and mean in a good time so that we never went down. We went through 12 downturns and we never went down with the industry. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, look, it sounds like there was a ton of change, huge roller coaster ride, you know, oh, awesome. um, <laughs> yeah. in that industry. How did you create a culture of change where people knew, oh, my goodness, whether it was every three years, four years, big change is coming. You know, change is one of the hardest things to bring people through. How do you create a culture of change?
1: We call it – we had a term. You'll see I've got a lot of one- and two-word terms. I love it. And this one was Mustang Motion. We called it the Mustang Motion. Uh, We had a song sung to the locomotion. Can you (laughs)
0: sing it for us, Phil?
1: everybody's doing a brand new dance. now. Look at you go. Come on, is- baby, do the Mustang motion. We had a dance and everything, but we moved people all the time. Every two or three months, they're moving offices. It's changing. We went from manual drafting to computer drafting. Imagine the change in teaching your people to go from manual drafting to computer drafting.
0: So how do you build that in the culture? How do you get people to embrace that huge change? These are massive changes.
1: Well, we got them so used to change, changing the team they're on, changing the people they're working with, changing the environment where they were, that when big changes would come, they would really just laugh at them and crank right through it. So we were in the offshore oil industry Uh, very tough because they're drilling wells while you're designing. I remember one project, they're drilling a new well, and it changes the whole process. We need different equipment things, and and we're into piping in the fabrication yard. Normally, you would shut that job down for three months, re-engineer it, and then get started up, and you'd have a six-month delay in the project. Right. We got the team together, worked over a weekend, had the process figured out. By Wednesday, we had ordered the new equipment from people who were already supplying stuff. Two weeks later, the drawings were in the fab yard. We didn't even slow down, didn't change the end date for the client. But most people would have just frozen. Our people, it's a change. How do we crank it through? And because our suppliers and our clients were included in our team, Mm -hmm. we could just make it happen. Right. It's like you have to create I think from the top, it was top to bottom, people were always moving and we would not let them build turf. There was no turf building in the company. And we were very transparent. So the communication channels can be power channels in a company. Mm -hmm. We broadly communicated. We were down in with the people. We were at the activities with the people. They could ask us anything. They could ask leadership anything. And I think one of the Things that would happen during the onboarding process. Old-time Mustangers would tell the new people. Most of the time, when management says something, you figure out what the opposite of that is, and that's reality. Right. This is a different type of company. If management says this is the way it is, that really is the way it is. Right. If if we saw a downturn coming, we would tell the people. Very transparent. Yeah, we see it coming. This is what we're doing to get ready for it. You need to do your part to get ready for it.
0: Right, yeah. right. So, so transparency sounds like it was key here, where sure. you had the same information we have.
1: Yes, and oh yeah, and by being that way, you you never had to worry about what you had told somebody in the past because no matter what right. the situation was, you're going to say the same thing and react the same way. So there, there's no like politics in our body, and therefore there was no politics really in the body of the company.
0: You know, it was interesting. I. Uh, had spoke to Holly Delaney who's on our board. She's the uh, director of HR at Zappos Uh people and culture over there. And she said, when they go through big change, the leadership um, there was two things that really stood out. One uh, instead of, you know, standing up over everybody, they really sit down and get to their level. Uh, And the second thing was they talked about what they were transparent about the message, but, but started with what they were concerned about. They, they, they brought their own fears to the conversation. I are heading down this path, but here's also what we're nervous about. Here's what, here's what I'm thinking about. What's keeping me up at night. I, I love that. Um, would you say that's too far or would that be in line with, uh, with how you would uh, push out that
1: message? Well, I think that's really important because it's lonely at the top. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. right. You, you feel like
1: you can't talk about some of the nitty gritty things in, I remember after we had turned over to second generation leadership, we were going into a downturn. And at that point, I'm just attending the meetings to watch and listen. And the the new head was talking about how bad this downturn was gonna be and we're gonna have to let go of this and do this and do this. And it was all like, I call it Debbie Downer, (laughs) the the way he was talking. And so afterwards I got with him and I said, Hey, those things that you said are true, but it's how you present it. You can present it from a positive standpoint, or you can present it as a negative. And your job as the leader is to be trying to spiral people up. Right. So if if nothing else, you're going to get them to neutral. But if you're spiraling down, (laughs) they're going to go down further than wherever you are.
0: (laughs) They will follow the leader
1: down. And it, it was very interesting to watch him change over the next three weeks and then the ceo after him was a lady michelle mcnichol and she'd been in the company 20 years had come up from project engineer all the way up to ceo and when she went into a downturn it's like she knew it 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 was in her bloodstream and how she went into it how she set it up how she talked to the people was the way my partner and I did it. And it was, hey, I'm I'm going to be positive. Here's the positive steps we are going to do. Here's the actions we can do. You be looking at what actions you can do to change this outcome. Right, and, right. And I think that's a key thing similar to what, what you were saying.
0: Hmm. Uh, oh, a few other questions. I want to talk to you. One of your um, messages in your book, one of the seven steps is, Use hard copy communication. Can you tell us more about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, everybody's in this digital world and they think yeah. that you don't really need hard copy anymore. Uh, one of the things we had was like a two foot by three foot calendar with Mustang at the top and a pencil that you could write and plan on. Those calendars went out to clients, suppliers, and most everybody at the company hung one up in their office. It had the big blue horse on it the clients would plan major projects on those calendars. Our competitors would come into their conference rooms oh, wow. working on a project and they're all planning on a big blue horse calendar. Oh, and great. I had other sales guys call me up and say, hey, you're killing me. I was in a client's office, an 8 by 10 office, and half the wall is covered with your calendar. Oh, I love it. But hard copy works. But the biggest thing we did is the monthly newsletter that we did we sent it to the house. So ah, many people do a digital newsletter, send that's it out. great. People read the first paragraph and delete it, or they look at some titles and hit delete.
0: You so print, print and
1: send to the house. Print and send it. The spouse will read everything in there because they want to know what's going on at the company ah. where their husband or wife is working. If there's pictures of the kids in there, yeah, that newsletter is staying on the dining room table for the kids. Gold. That but is it, gold. But it also showed things that are coming up. So it, it's, hey, we want to go to that skating party. And like I would dress up like the Grinch to read the Christmas story to the kids. And my secretary would paint me green and I look like the Grinch. But that became like an annual thing and the families would want to go there. What happens there is that hard copies went in the hearts and the minds of the family. So now it's easier for the employee. They have to work a little late or they need to come in on the weekend. They've got that family support going, hey, this is the best job you've ever been in. Yeah, go take care of that company. They're they're wow. taking good care of you. But hard copy, and then the other thing is swag, like the trinkets and things, the toys that we would hand out at birthday parties. We called it the, the Mustang fairy would come around at two in the morning and just put things on people's desks out of the blue. So they come in in the morning, and what I wanted to do is put a smile on a person's face and create a memory. So mm-hmm. they walk in in the morning. Maybe they didn't have a good morning getting the kids off to school. And here's this cool thing on their desk out of the blue. Puts a smile on their face. They're taking it home. To the kids or their spouse that night. They're talking about what happened at work. If you can create those memories through activities or whatever and put smiles on people's faces, that's spiraling attitudes up. And it's just infectious. It, it works.
0: I love it. So it sounds like surprise as well as incorporate the family. I think we always just see what's in front of us, i.e. the employees. And in some cases, take for granted the broader the employee's family, what's behind the yeah. curtain. I love that. that is, but, uh, that's that, great.
1: That newsletter gives you just that, that touch
0: right. all the yeah. time,
1: continuous touches.
0: Right? Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, I want to talk about your experience around when someone um, couldn't align with the culture. And, and, and I know you said, look, the, the, the organization would just flush those people out. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. What, what did your leadership, um, how would those conversations go? Someone didn't align. What was the, you know, walk me through that process. You know, hey, Bill, this isn't working based on ABC. And then that final goodbye. Can you give us a taste of what that, what that was like?
1: Yeah, so what would happen is, is it would float up. Hey, this person's not working up. And so their peers would be telling the boss, this person's not working. That boss would come visit with them on why it wasn't working and talk about the culture and how we were a little bit different. And you've got the right skills, but you're not interacting. You're not a team player. You're not helping the team perform. And this is what we think you need to do to straighten up. If it didn't work... They would also look at that person's skills to see if, is there another place? Like sometimes might be a personality difference between that person and a project manager. And if they could identify that, they would shift that person say, hey, we're gonna move you to this other project team or into this other department where we think you'll be able to perform. But this is like a second chance. Here's what you need to be doing. Did that work out a lot of times or was it? it? Uh, uh, A lot of times it did work. And we saved saved really good people that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also did what I called morphing in the organization. Again, I'm giving you Higgs Higgs terms here. This is great. But, But we would morph. So if we thought a person could move up a level from where they were, We would move them up that level, but we would not announce it. We would just ease them into that position where now they're leading, say, five or six people. And by not announcing, it would just sort of happen. And if it worked out, great. If they got into that position and all of a sudden they weren't performing, we could move them back down without losing somebody that we had invested in that was to me, that was huge in redu- reducing turnover because right. A, that person saw that we tried to advance them. They saw that they did not have the right skill set yet. We were able to save them, but then we were able to talk to them about what skills they needed to get to move to that position. And so that morphing of the organization, if you would announce it and that person's in it, <laughs> there's the bad thing about it, a really tight culture we would bring in like a super project manager from outside and our people would cut their knees out right? because they didn't act like a mustang. What we ended up doing is we would bring a top project manager in and put them two levels down into a project. So they're way overpaid. Nobody knows that, but we knew they had the skills to run that project. We let them earn their stripes with the people. And then we just floated them up to project manager. That was a lesson learned from <laughs> wiping out with about three really top-notch project managers. Once we started doing that, like our uh, third CEO, uh, Steve Knowles, worked for Chevron. Was a top guy at Chevron. We brought him in three levels down into a project. He not only flo- floated to the top of the project, then he floated to in charge of the department. Floated a up great to way C- to integrate a uh, to CEO. A yeah. yeah, but it. But it's understanding that your culture, it, it can also be hard to get into. <laughs> yeah, and so you have to recognize that and find a way to get people into where they get accepted, and then their natural leadership abilities and technical skills can float them up.
0: Right. Yeah. And what do you think in general? Uh, you talk a lot about the cost of a bad culture. What is that? Is there a percentage? You know, how should people be calculating it? Talk to me about that a little bit.
1: Uh, That's that's the big mystery out there. You want this culture, but does it pay for itself? So at my website, culturecodechampions.com, I have two free tools there. One's a culture assessment. So for the seven steps, you can figure out where you're strong, where you're weak. Okay, great. But then then I also have a culture calculator where you can put – your HR person can plug in your people, average salaries, and it'll show – how they could change the bottom line. So for us, our competition was, you know, four to 6% bottom line profit. We were 20 to 22%. Wow. I've Wow. gone very conservative because even with people implementing all seven steps, if they do a pretty decent job, uh, I went conservative and I say you can only add about 5%. So if you're a bottom line 6% company, You could go to bottom line 11%, but it's with your same revenue, your same people, your same clients. All you've done is changed your culture. That's big bucks. And so when HR runs that number, then they can go into the C-suite and say, hey, we want to start implementing these seven steps. And here's the ones we think we need the most help on. And these culture steps are super cheap. There's like almost negligible dollars. It's right. more getting people to put the energy in and focus on it and, and get engaged. So it's right. not a big dollar thing, but it's a big, be working on it, creating these habits in your daily routine. Consistency,
0: Right. Right.
1: Thing. Yeah. Bill, it's, that's great. It's a, it's a big cost change. Yeah.
0: What about, uh, I want to end with, and I'm sure you've been talking to lots, um, of your peers in a time like now during this COVID-19 crisis, what's the number one thing uh, or top few things that people need to be doing at this time to strengthen culture?
1: As I say, we went through some huge downturns in the oil patch. Some of them overnight, like two weeks ago when the oil price went down to 20 bucks in Houston right now, that's blood in the streets. I mean, hundreds of companies go under when that oil price happens like that. What what I try to do, and everybody's doing the first two steps of Culture Code Champions right now. Their bosses are communicating well with their people. They know their families. They know what's going on. So the communication is there, and there's more of a bonding than there's ever been. Hey, we're holding hands. We're going to get through this thing together. Right. Well, What we did in every downturn is you're trying to plug all the holes in the bucket. Okay, so you have revenue coming in, into the bucket, and there's holes in the bucket. Same in families, you got holes in the bucket, everybody's plugging those and trying to conserve cash, whether it's in your family or in your company. Take notes on those, we took notes in downturns as to what we did to survive. them. We cross trained people so that we could work with fewer people. So when we came, when you come out, Okay, you've done step one, step two of Culture Code Champions. Now, Ed, while you're here and you're prepping to come out, identify how you're going to do the other steps as you come out because everybody's going to be listening to you. Everybody's going to want to put that company back together. This is the opportune time to change your culture to where you want to go. There won't be a better time. And that always happened to us coming out of downturns We were very strong and then you're starting to hire and you're starting to scale up, but you're bringing people in. And what we called it is, how do you stay lean in the good times? We weren't opening those holes in the buckets when we came out of the downturn. right? And so when we hired people in, none of those frills and funny things were happening. We stayed lean in the good times. So the next downturn, we didn't go down we would go flat but we wouldn't go down. I, I call it no fate leadership, but it, it's it's all habits. You've got to create the habits. Culture is the big driver on those habits. And I, I think people are in an opportune time now over the next two months to set up for coming out.
0: Great. Look, that has been incredible. Uh, Bill, thanks for your time. Uh, Bill Higgs, uh, author of Culture Code Champion, Uh, And thank you so much. Um, We uh, we really appreciate your insight, your experience, and your thoughts uh, in today's podcast. Thanks so much, Bill.